I feel privileged to be able to coach hundreds of women around the globe. And one thing that stands out for me is how difficult it is for many women to recognize and sit with, let alone communicate their strength and their value. So there's this real resistance to acknowledging what they have and what they do well. Many women find that strengths or value identification very, very difficult. You're listening to the Woman of Value podcast. You are about to hear the story of a woman who is following her dreams and passions and creating positive change in the world. My guest today is Polina Neal. She is a woman's leadership educator and coach, and she has over 25 years of experience delivering leadership development programs for the United Nations and other global organizations. She holds a doctorate in gender and international politics, and she teaches on a number of different executive education programs. She is a professional certified coach with the PCC, which is one of the highest achievements. And she's been published in many important publications, including Forbes, Psychology Today, and the Harvard Business Review. She's a bit of an overachiever. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Polina. Thank you, Sandy. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> I love all your achievements. And um, we're both certified as coaches. And it's always exciting to talk to somebody who's continued her education. And um, it seems like you really are making a huge difference in the world, which is why you're here with me today on the Woman of Value podcast. So tell us, what does woman of value mean to you? Woman of value for me, I think is really about understanding and actually savoring my value as a human being and letting go some of those proving strategies. So I feel like it's really focusing value or defining value based on who I am and how I show up in the world and not simply assessing value in terms of uh, assessments or calculations based on things like success or likes or achievements or even doing. Yeah, for a woman who's done so much, it's really refreshing to hear. I think we can get so caught up in the, I have to do more. And I've seen mm. this kind of analysis paralysis a lot with, uh, I will be valuable when mm -hmm. I get this degree or when I have proven this or when I have mm -hmm. created this project or, and I think we're raised pretty much to believe that our value lies in the doing and not the being mm -hmm. and to just be is such a concept for so many to try to figure out and wrap their heads around. Absolutely. And I, I think for me, and I, I certainly don't want, you know, I, I I think that if you had have asked me this question at 36, 46, and now at 56, the answers would have been very different. And I think it's precisely that because in society, we have this bias of doing over being. And there's also the gender dimension overlaid. The doing often is more agentic and male, and the being is often associated more with the female and the communal. But ironically, some of the things that are associated with our being are the very things that are so valuable, whether that's showing up in a way that makes others feel seen, heard, and understood, 
and creating that space so that people can actually step into it and be and do more. So I think that the being is largely undervalued. And I'm trying at this chapter, my second or third act, I'm not sure, I'm trying to really focus on that part of cherishing the the human being. We're all cherished human beings in this world. And that's really about giving ourselves self-compassion and also really leaning into this idea that how we show up to ourselves and others is as if not more important than simply the doing. I so agree. And I, I love the word show up. <laughs> I, uh, in my book, Becoming a Woman of Value, How to Thrive in Life and Love, I, I divide it into three sections that I call the pillars of core confidence. And they are mm. show up, stand up, speak up. And I think it starts with showing up because we really need to just start being out there, being ourselves, starting to feel confident that we are enough. And then we take a stand for what's important to us once we identify who we are in the world and then learning how to speak up, to set boundaries, to do all the things that protect those things that are most valuable to us. And so that's how I structured the book and just the word show up. I mean, how many people mm. don't show up for themselves or others? And it's it's just such an important thing. Absolutely. I love the I love the way you've structured the the book. Oh, thank you. Well, let's talk about you and you stepping into your value and either as a, as a leader, as a woman, you talked a little bit about where you are now in this act of your life, but mm. were there some pivotal moments that you can share with us that helped you to first recognize the value that you bring to the world? I had a couple of moments and I, I, I hope they're, they're okay. I'm going back a while. The first one I wanted to share with you is when I was quite young. I was I was about 10 years old. And I I remember I had always wanted to be a, a patrol. Um, I'm not sure if they use that word anymore, but you know, the the school crossings, looking after the school yeah, crossings. We call them crossing the, guards. Yeah. Crossing guards, right. So in the 70s, um, you know, that was something that it was a big ambition for me. And I remember signing up for it, watching diligently, signing up uh, as soon as the announcement came out. And a couple of weeks later, the the principal called us, everyone who had signed up to the office or in, uh, sorry, to the gymnasium. We all sat around cross-legged waiting for, for the announcement because he was going to identify who had been selected. So now, again, bearing in mind, I was 10 years old and I don't think 10 year olds of that generation are as savvy as they are at this, you know, at this point in time, I, my enthusiasm is he started to call out the names and, and I recognized fairly quickly, I wasn't going to be called my enthusiasm started to, to dampen. But one of the things I noticed is that all of the children who were being selected were you know, the children of the local doctor, the children of the judge, the, the child of the, the chemistry teacher, the child of the, the PTA. I knew something was, something felt, felt off. And when the, when the principal finished, he, you know, he stood there very stern looking with his clipboard and he, 
he looked at us and and looked at his clipboard and said, um, have I forgot anyone? And it, it was very much a rhetorical question, particularly at that time, you know, children were meant to be seen and not heard. And I remember without even thinking, throwing up my hand and saying, yeah, you forgot me. And everyone turned to look at me in, you know, the, the children in disbelief and the principal and teachers in, in shock. But what was so interesting to me is I remember even knowing at the time that the, the principal was, you know, first and foremost, shocked by this insolent, this impertinence that normally you didn't see from a child, but he didn't also, he had no idea who I was. And so what I, what I really felt was happening, or I guess some of the lessons that I had even back then were, was this idea around how people and, and society start to assign value and who counts and who doesn't. And in this particular space, it felt very much aligned with with debates maybe around socioeconomic class or standing, but I knew that there was, you know, of course I didn't have the language for this, but I knew that there was something going on around being seen and not being seen. So that really stood with me. And I think what also stood stood out for me was, you know, I, I don't necessarily expect it would come across here, but I am a, quite a strong introvert. And I also did come from a family and culture that, you know, children are meant to be seen and not heard. We respect authority. We respect our elders. So it was very atypical of me to throw my hand up. But I remember feeling a sense of injustice at the time and wanting to speak out. So I really wanted to, you know, I think at that moment in time, there was this, this learning very, at a very young age that if I wanted certain opportunities, I was going to have to knock and or, or maybe even have to bang on the door. So, you know, that was a, a very formative experience for me. And well, I definitely want to say that's colored how I've shown up and in some cases I've had to show up. Um, so that's one of them uh, that, that immediately comes to mind that felt very, that felt very significant because I think that those, those instilled in me a lot of the skills that were equally important for getting the summer jobs to be able to go to university, um, finding activities um, so that I could make sure I had a, an application that was attractive to go to university, pursuing higher education, moving around globally. I think all of that, you know, those kinds of lessons were instrumental in helping me understand the importance of um, not only using your voice, maybe not asking for permission, but also um, knocking and sometimes banging on doors. Well, I love that example. And I can relate as an introvert that I I came from a background that that I don't think we were raised to not be heard. I don't remember it being as explicit as that, but there was an assumption that you just nobody was there to support us. Like nobody was mm. there to say you have a voice and you deserve to be heard as children yeah. today often are, mm -hmm. you know, really supported in that way. Mm -hmm. And like you said at the beginning, like kids, 10 year olds today are much more savvy. They have social media, they, they see things that we don't see. 
And um, I, I love that you raised your hand. I mean, you just were like, you forgot me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and those those initial childhood moments, and I, they really stick. And I, I remember mm. in coaching school, we had to do some of this work where we had mm. to remember the first time that something made an impression on us, you know, where the seeds of something were planted. And mm-hmm. I do believe that there, there's something rose up inside you. That was something that already was there and worked against everything that society and your school and social status and all the things mm-hmm. that were in existence it worked against all of that. And you were just like, Hey, I'm here. <laughs> you forgot me. So I love that. I love how it influenced all of your future choices and it gave you some, I mean, did he end up remembering you after that? Or did you still get forgotten? What ended up happening? And I think that this, I, you know, I don't think I know this was a something they did to save face in the meeting is I ended up getting put on a wait list. Um, because I think they had never had anything like this before. And, and I'm not surprised. And I ended up becoming a patrol. <laughs> So there, you know, it was a successful outcome. And I've had other experiences where I've raised my hand like that, and it hasn't been successful. I think, I think for me, what was so interesting about this experience was somehow knowing something was off that, that there was a, a, a very deliberate way people are included or not. And me not being okay with that, there was a sense of injustice and and kind of calling that out. And it was all in a very spontaneous, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm articulating it now like I thought this through. I didn't. It was all happened in a matter of seconds. Um, I wish I had that level of thought, but I didn't. And I think it's that kind of ability to almost mobilize, as you mentioned, what's already there. There's a certain energy, um, whether that's going to be an enabler or disenabler, and use that in as a way to uh, almost a platform or a springboard to your, your your future self and how you want to show up. Yeah, and most people don't even think about a future self, but. <laughs> It's also an important piece, like looking at the past, looking at the future, looking at how we want to intentionally create a life, right? Mm. Because these little breadcrumbs are meaningful. And I'm curious about how this experience and these types of experience have influenced your work in leadership. You know, it, it, it is all woven together. It, it comes back to this idea of how we see ourselves and how others, uh, you know, how value has been defined and how sometimes we buy into the, these notions of value. I, I feel privileged to be able to coach hundreds of women around the globe. And one thing that's, there's many things, but one thing that stands out for me is really this challenge or how, you know, how difficult it is for many women to recognize and sit with, let alone communicate their strength and their value. So there's this real resistance to acknowledging what they have and what they do well. So in the coaching sessions, a lot of times what happens is, you know, when I ask a woman about her strengths and her, her value, the value she, she has as part of her leadership development, or just more generally, Many women find that 
strengths or value identification very, very difficult. Um, some have even talked about it as painstaking and, you know, it can take multiple sessions. We do a number of different activities, some women not even recognizing they, they have value. And, you know, I often get these, these messages late at night. I hate this exercise. It's too hard. You know, I, I help me. You know, the good news is that when they get to the other side, they find it to be a very transformative exercise. But I think it's very telling that when when some women are asked to think about what they do well and their value, it can be incredibly difficult. So that's one way I see it showing up. Another way I, I see it showing up very frequently, I do a lot of 360 debriefings. And, you know, as you know, these are always multi-rater assessments. And when we do the debriefing, the, the women want to immediately go to the to their weaknesses or the development areas. They don't want to spend any time looking at the strengths. And so when, you know, I I try and get them to bask or seep a little bit in the strengths, you know, they're they often say some version of, well, the raiders are just being nice. You know, they're just doing that to be nice. And so I'll, you know, gently um, ask them, really, you know, 25 anonymous raiders are, are just being nice all at once? You know, is that statistically possible? And so, you know, the irony is that, again, they have a lot of difficulty recognizing their strength and value, even when it's acknowledged by someone else. There's this tendency to, to dismiss it. So I think there's this pattern of many women having trouble identifying and, and really owning their, their value. And if you can't see your value, then it's very difficult to claim your value. And if you can't claim your value, then it's difficult to elevate it or amplify it. So when I, when I think of, you know, more broadly woman of value as it pertains to women, I'm, I really think that in the leadership work that I do, one of the big pieces that I have to focus on and I, I want to focus on is how do we get women to be able to connect to the totality of their experiences, their wisdom, their power, their value, their resources, their resilience, so that they can start to see that value, the value that they have is really quite whole and there's a breadth of it. And how can they use that in the service of their leadership and, and the contribution that they'd like to make? So that's, that's one big way I see it showing up. That's a huge way. I think that I've seen it in so many parts of my coaching as well. And I, I, I know that I struggled with this also. And mm. I, I, I remember when I was just starting to tell you before we um, started recording that one of my first coaches who came from the Coaches Training Institute where I trained, she one day told me that I'm a leader. And I really was like, what are you talking about? And I, cause I never saw myself as a leader for many reasons. One, I always felt like I didn't have a clear point of view um, cause I didn't trust my point of view even though I always did have very clear points of view. I was a leader in so many ways, but I was also a second child. And I thought this, this myth of the second child isn't the leader. They are more the follower. <laughs> so yeah. it turns out that I have guided my older sister quite a bit in her life because 
I have resources that she doesn't have. And so for me, it was, I think a big turning point in leadership came, first of all, post-divorce, going into coaching, becoming a leader, starting my own business, taking it seriously, Mm. and then starting this group on Facebook for uh, people who were dating over 40 women and realizing that I had to step even more firmly into leadership there because I had guidelines, which most groups don't have clear guidelines. And those guidelines reflected my principles and the way that I was living my life and conducting my business. And so I didn't want anybody in the group to be, um, to, to advise each other, for example, you know, in most groups, it's do this, don't do that. Well, we don't know the whole story. And how can you, Mm -hmm. you know, how can you advise somebody you can support them? And here's how. And so guiding people as to how to communicate, how to support each other. So it was starting to show up in all these different parts. And it was like, oh, I have to this is painful. Like I have to show up. I have to keep showing up and then contracts and, you know, all the things that, that show that I take myself seriously. And then Mm. I help other women do the same thing. If you have ever played small to make other people feel comfortable or maybe stayed in a bad relationship or job too long because you didn't think you could do any better, I wrote a book for you. It's called Becoming a Woman of Value, How to Thrive in Life and Love. Each of the 30 chapters contains a life lesson, a story, and an exercise to bring you closer to reaching your full potential. Becoming a Woman of Value is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. What was some of the the big turning points in your life in terms of showing up, taking yourself more seriously as a leader? Probably there's many. I mean, I definitely like you, Sandy. I think there were times where I didn't necessarily see myself as a leader and and held all sorts of limiting assumptions about what that meant or, you know, myths that needed busting. I think one of the things that I have struggled with personally, and I certainly see many of my clients struggling with, um, particularly women clients, is the the big myth that I, I see is really my work should speak for itself. And this idea that, you know, because we work hard, um, and that has been an effective success strategy throughout your education, you know, in, in school and then university, that that the some that same success strategy is also going to work in an organizational environment, which is much more complex. And the rules of the game are quite different. So I know certainly when I had, you know, I had spent the earlier part of my life, uh, the first probably 20 years working in different international organizations, including the UN. And I, you know, very, I'm almost going to, I'm tempted to say naively thought that this strategy, my work will speak for itself, will propel me forward. If I work hard enough, people are going to see, they're going to appreciate, they're going to recognize and reward, and I'm going to be pulled up through the system and taken care of. (laughs) And I did work hard. So there's a, you know, it's not that I, I expected something for nothing, but I did have this belief. And I you know, I saw in my own life, and I see this all the time with my my women clients, 
the male colleague, and it's often the junior male colleague who is less experienced, has less uh, education and qualifications, and is probably less technically competent, leapfrogs leapfrogs over you with the promotion because they are much better at you know the things that like the networking and the visibility and and making sure that people are aware of what they do and what they can do and so that was certainly very on, on a personal level i found that incredibly disheartening and frustrating and I really, you know, I, I had to to think about how I was going to show up differently um, and, and try and f I think one of the, the things that that complicates this is people often have such polarized views about whether it's networking or visibility, things like that, that are going to make you and your work visible. There's no, it, it's polarized versus nuanced. And so it's very hard to situate yourself anywhere in that discourse if you see visibility and networking is sleazy or transactional. So for me, I know in the beginning, I had to really find a way to make it my own. And in the work that I do, I have found that it's one of the, the main reasons that, that comes up for, for not embarking in, in these kind of activities or, or even just having a bigger success strategy than working hard is, you know, time, Sometimes it's mindset that can be a big one, and then also know how. So I, I know for me, I had to work on all of them, and I think that with the women I work with, it really depends where they're coming from. But oftentimes it's kind of a combination of two. And I find usually, if you are able to, to buy into this idea that we do actually need a, a bigger success toolkit um, as part of our leadership, then usually the time reason slash excuse falls away. When we realize its value, we can make, we actually can make time for it. Yeah. And I like the reframing as well. Like, because I know that when I started networking, it was the most off-putting, horrible thing. It felt like I'm just going to get out there and try to sell myself to people. And it mm. felt disgusting. Mm. And I remember just, getting out there, just pushing myself to network because I had to get known. I had to start podcasting. I had to do all these things that really mm. scared me and felt like almost narcissistic, I would say. Mm. That was my mindset. Mm -hmm. And realizing that networking is just making connections. It's mm -hmm. getting to know people. It's curiosity. It's mm. not just me selling myself on you and pushing myself on you and podcasting for me has become a way to meet amazing people like you and really broaden my knowledge base and mm. give a gift to people who are looking for information and curate it all in one place. Mm -hmm. And so I came from a background of, I was married to a professional comedian. He was the face. He was on stage and I never saw myself as a person who would get up and speak in front of people. And so it's, it's all these things when you reframe it and say, who am I not to, you know, who am I to keep my, my expertise to myself? Mm -hmm. It changes the perspective so much on what leadership looks like and feels like mm -hmm. and how it's not just about you. It's really about 
being more of you so that you can inspire more in others. And Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the work that you're doing. I mean, it really sounds like that's, that's where you are now. Absolutely. And I, I love what you say about how, um, in the beginning, it was a difficult journey for you. It makes, it reminds me of, you know, I used to say that I didn't just step out of my comfort zone as an introvert. I tend to live outside my comfort zone as an introvert. Um, you know, it, it kind of takes me back to a, an early experience when I was young and again, not necessarily coming from, you know, I I came from very modest means. And again, if I was going to have any opportunities, I had to create them. So I had to start looking for summer jobs and I literally had to go knocking on doors around the community to try and and find a summer job, introducing myself, et cetera. And, and it was really, then I saw the power of relationship building and I, you know, at 15, because again, now we're back in the eighties, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know enough at 15 to call it networking. I think at then I was more building relationships. But for me, networking is about building relationship or connection. And it's based on reciprocity and generosity and curiosity. And it, it can be that if that's how you want it to be. And I started doing it that way. And so what surprised me when I started, you know, at the tender age of 15, was that it was actually, it was a happy surprise. It was actually much easier because if you come to this with a sense of sincerity, um, curiosity, vulnerability, and sincerity, I think that's the basis through which you can actually connect with people at a much deeper level. I love how young you were when you started all this. (laughs) You were a little prodigy out there. (laughs) It was really, it was out of necessity. And, you know, I can say that, but, you know, that's what as you mentioned earlier, it's those experiences in our early life that are so formative and that can either serve as enablers or disenablers. And and these, you know, in my case, served as enablers. Um, I've got other ones that were disenablers, but definitely these two are ones that propelled me forward. (laughs) Yeah. And I think when, when we also can really mine for those moments when, our values were stepped on. Like when we get really angry or annoyed and often the values work that I do with a client, I start with that. I start with what makes you really upset and angry and where have you felt a sense of injustice? And you realize these are those core values that have always been present, just like you with injustice. No, I I want to be included. So inclusion, I mean, you know, being seen, being heard, being valued, these things keep coming up in our lives. If we can pay attention to those things, we Mm. can really start to connect them and, and step more boldly into them because it is through the getting out of the comfort zone that Mm. we grow and Mm -hmm. it's scary. I mean, I've had moments where I thought I was going to die, but you, you, you really, uh, you know, I'm I'm a big leap and then look kind of person. Cause if I analyze it too much, I won't do it. So do it, then figure it out. And um, Mm. often, cause we sit there and we just analyze it and we say Mm -hmm. we can't, and then we don't. So I, you know, this is a a good inspiration for anybody who's sitting on the fence thinking Mm. I can't, or I won't to just really start taking those steps. So you run this company and um, it's called Unabridged Leadership. 
right? Yes, yes, it is. Uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about where the company is now and where your dream is for the future. I guess maybe the obvious answer for me is that I, maybe the more boring answer is that I design and I deliver different leadership interventions, leadership development interventions, mostly for women. And the focus is trying to get women to be able to connect to their their power, their potential, and their wisdom so that they're able to make more personal and professional impact. And given that I work in the, the global development space, a lot of times social impact is very, not just for the people who work in this space, but social impact is also important. So it's being able to, to help women have to be able to make the impact they would like to make as leaders in whatever that looks like for them. So I have a, a part of my work, a large part of my work is around coaching and it is primarily with women, but not only with women. I, I also have uh, male coaching clients, which I think is always wonderful because it, you know, I'm always, I feel like it makes me a well-rounded coach. So I am grateful to the male clients that I have that said, I do have a, a much bigger female base. Then the second part of the work I do is really around um, the designing and delivering workshops, which is something I love. And this is more of in the group space. So a lot of the, the work I do is around women in leadership, looking at myths and stereotypes around women in leadership, looking at how to, to value yourself as a leader, um, managing your inner critic and engaging your inner mentor. Because a lot of times, a lot of the work that, and I'm sure you've recognized this in your clients, your work with clients is we need to do some inner work um, all the time with the the outer work or the, the more tactical work. So there's, um, I, I really enjoy working on on uh, workshops that that delve into that I I design workshops on networking and visibility and specifically how to do this in a way that aligns with your personality goals and values because I I have seen firsthand how important this has been for me and my my trajectory and moving me in in places that I wanted to go and never thought I could go simply because of the you know maybe the the circumstances. So that's a a big piece of of what I do and I think that um when I think of my value and I it's funny because when I was thinking about this I thought about it as my value and then I thought maybe it might be I'd call it my superpowers and it's not unique to me but I think it's a coaching superpowers our ability to create safe safe spaces for people I think that when I'm able to create a safe space for someone they're able to step into their own brilliance and that is such a beautiful gift that we as coaches can give to our clients I think we all share that. And I think that's the big work that we do as coaches is holding that space. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And I think that mm. some coaches do it better than others and some therapists You're do right. it better than others. So I just, I don't think it's across, across the board. I think mm. it is yes. unique to yeah. coaches and therapists who are really good at what they do. Mm -hmm. And um, and there's a way to create it. You know, when mm. when we first start working with a client to have a session with them to talk about how to design that relationship so both people mm -hmm. feel safe. I mean, it doesn't just happen and it's not a one size fits all. 
No. Um, so I, I, it's one of my favorite things is designing that mm-hmm. alliance together and really mm-hmm. checking in and letting them know that I want their feedback as well as giving them feedback. And mm-hmm. can I interrupt them when they're going on too long? You know, it's all those permissions <laughs> that we ask that creates the safety that, um, that both of us need. Um, yeah. So, and I love that you work with men too, because I started out mm-hmm. only with women and now I include men and it does give me a well-rounded approach to coaching I just find, I mean, I relate mostly to women because I am a woman uh, and I have gone through all these things, but I think knowing that men also go through these same insecurities and the same issues is so important to the work, I think. So I, I love that. And tell us about our, your future dream. Like where, where would you like to be? Where are you going? Mm-hmm. Well, my, <laughs> You know, I guess my big dream is this kind of my aspiration as I, and it actually becomes even more, um, I guess, more pressing the, as I have each, each birthday, it becomes more important to me, but I, I really would like to, you know, I have the dream of us challenging these outdated systems of power that really no longer serve people or the planet. That's my dream is that we're able to, as a society, um, challenge and change those, those systems. And I think that for me anyway, working with, with clients, and I will say with women, um, to surface and be able to, to leverage their energy and contribution, I think is one way to create more inclusive, compassionate and accountable leadership, which I think is urgently required. And you're on that mission, which, you know, just will deepen as you, as you grow. And um, I have 10 years on you. So (laughs) uh, it's, it's just amazing as you begin to get older, and you realize Mm. the value of time and yeah, and our impact on the world. So I love that. Absolutely. We are gonna go into the lightning round now and answer some quick questions. Are you ready? I am kind of, (laughs) not really, but yes. (laughs) This is gonna make me on the spot, okay. (laughs) Okay, the first one is fill in the blank. I used to think I wasn't blank enough. Tall. Oh, that's an interesting one. Can't do much about that. I know. That's my sphere of control. <laughs> How tall are you? Five four. Oh. So that's unless not so I short. wear some some heel, my husband's really tall. So we're kind of mismatched in terms of height. <laughs> and it's so funny because women, their number one requirement is tall men, no matter how tall they are. <laughs> And I married a guy who was my height and it never bothered me because we never had to adjust the car seat when we would get in. I wasn't looking for tall. I was looking, I wasn't looking, but I wasn't looking for tall. <laughs> ah, that's so funny. What was the number one thing holding you back from becoming a woman of value? I'm going to say comparison. And I love the Teddy Roosevelt quote, comparison is the thief of joy. And I believe that firmly, but I did, I learned it much later on in life. Yeah. Compare and despair. We like to say. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's the worst. I was just mm. watching the new season of Queer Eye. Do you ever watch that show? 
I don't know if we have that. Oh, you don't have it? It's on Netflix um, wow. here in the United States. Oh. I think it's probably pretty widely out there on Netflix, but I know different countries that you're yeah, in. Yeah, different France. countries get different. Yeah. Yeah. I don't so think we have it, but it's such a, it's such a beautiful show. And oh. there was a woman they were working with uh, who, do you know the premise of the show at all? No. So it's five guys. This show has been on for, for a long time. It's gone through different, uh, different members who do what they do. They have a coach who deals with culture. They have a foodie person who helps people learn to cook they have the clothing person who teaches you how to dress better. They have the home improvement guy who comes in and redoes the interior of the home. And then they have the hair and grooming and facial stuff person. And wow. so they all come in and they kind of, they, somebody nominates a person and they come in and they remake their life. And they always have some beautiful story that they're coming from. And so they had a woman who had a lot of limiting beliefs and I'm not going to share any details for anybody who hasn't watched it, but her whole thing was comparing herself to others. And mm. they had her do this exercise where she went to a junkyard and they set up windows, um, like a, about five or six windows that were old windows. And she took a permanent marker and wrote on them all of her limiting beliefs that I'm too old, I'm too fat, I'm too this, I'm too that, because she was always comparing herself to my sister's thin, I gained weight, my this, my that. And, um, and just, it was hard for her to do it. And then she had to kind of reverse the limiting beliefs and say them out loud, and then take a bat and smash the windows. And it was just, it was like a really powerful exercise, but it was just to show her how much the thief of joy was showing up in her life because mm. she was comparing herself so much to other people. So it's just mm -hmm. amazing. I, I, I definitely can resonate with that. <laughs> I've had my moments and I still have my moments. Yeah. It's so easy to fall back into that. Mm -hmm. And especially with social media to look and see, oh my God, they're doing that. And I should be here and mm -hmm. I should get this degree and I should do a walk, mm -hmm. work a little harder. And why didn't I have that person on my podcast? <laughs> and Yeah, totally, totally. But it's so important to go back to, am I doing my best and how exactly. am I growing personally, personal mm -hmm. best? Yeah. Next question. What is the best advice you can give to a woman who wants to become more empowered? Practice the yes and philosophy. Um, when you're reviewing ideas, including deciding whether to do something or not, and really looking for the nuance instead of falling into this kind of polarized or dualistic thinking, really try and expand your thinking by, by using the yes and model. My son is taking an improv class, so it's it's mm. uh, been talked about a lot in the last few weeks, but that yes and instead of it has to be this way this, or not. Either or, or yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that. Next question, what advice would you give to your younger self? Practice curiosity as much as you possibly can in life. Yeah, curious instead of judgmental and shut down and right or wrong exactly. thinking again. Exactly. Uh, 
What a difference curiosity makes. Makes, yeah. What is something that people often get wrong about you? Many times people mistake my niceness for weakness. I've actually heard this from other people on my show. And it's interesting that nice, niceness is not weakness, but it can be. Some people who are really nice actually don't have boundaries and they're pushovers. So How do they find out that your niceness is not weakness? Usually when they trespass a boundary. (laughs) (laughs) You overstepped. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And boundaries are not harsh. They are kind. And I I think one of the hardest things in leadership is knowing how to set boundaries without being mean, especially as a woman. I think we are often push to our limits if we don't set things up clearly, calmly, mm-hmm. kindly from mm-hmm. the outset. I think boundaries are tricky for many women. I see it in, you know, whether I'm coaching in the leadership space or just in other spaces, I find that women tend to have more difficulty exercising boundaries because there's this notion that um, when you say no, that's associated with being disagreeable. Mm-hmm. There's a confusion of boundaries and niceness that the two can't coexist. When, as you said, boundaries are nice, boundaries are kind. It's knowing how to do it the right mm-hmm. way, which is why I teach courses on boundaries. I um, had one of my first podcast guests on this podcast was Fran Hauser, who wrote The Myth of the Nice Girl. And I love her. I love how she talks about setting boundaries as a leader in the media world. She worked at People Magazine and a lot of big media. And um, now she does in personal investments for projects that are near and dear to her heart. Um, She's an angel investor. But she's she's just a lovely, very principled woman who used to get pushed around because she would always be the one staying late and the one saying yes to everything mm. and realized I need to set boundaries. And mm. um, it's, it's a wonderful book. And finally, Polina, how would you like to be remembered? For the way I make people feel. Gorgeous. And I'm going to go on, go out on a limb and, and say that I, I generally enjoy having conversations where people feel better off that doesn't necessarily mean that conversations are always nice and agreeable, but they feel better after having the conversation, even if that takes them into a thinking space or a feeling good space or a curiosity place, but they're leaving with something that helps them grow. That's what it's all about. And Mm. so Felina, if you can leave our audience with your website where they can find you and I will have your other social media links on the show notes. Well, that's kind, Sandy. People, if people want to get in touch, they can reach me uh, at my website, which is www.unabridgedleadership.com. And that's unabridged one word, unabridged leadership is one word. And you know, just a quick note, I I chose that title very intentionally, and it really refers to how many times women show up with the abridged version of themselves. And I really wanted the work that I do and the message that I send to be about creating space for women to tell their whole story, not just a piece of the story that they feel is accepted or validated by 
by systems and conditions that exist. Oh, I love, I love that uh, explanation. It's really resonates through my entire being. And thank you so much, Polina, for, <laughs> for being here with me, for having a conversation that has a lasting effect on me and our audience members and for doing the beautiful work that you do in the world. Well, thank you, Sandy. It's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed the conversation and I also need to appreciate you for all of the work that you're doing, your publications and the podcasts and the space that you're creating for us to share our voice. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks everybody for listening. If you love our show, please give us a high rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It just helps us continue to bring you these wonderful guests be a woman of value. If you would like to step more fully into your value, grab a free copy of The Ultimate Guide to Becoming a Woman of Value on my website, thewomanofvalue.com. Just click the link at the top of the homepage. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to click the subscribe button in your listening app. And if there's something in this episode that inspired you, Please share it with others, because the more we share these inspirational stories, the more women of value we will have in this world. I'll see you next time.